If you would, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to John chapter 20. This morning we'll be in uh, John chapter 20, verses uh, 19 through 23. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. So as we consider these few verses this morning, we will consider them under two main headings. First of all, Jesus brings peace. Secondly, Jesus commissioned the apostles to preach the gospel. Jesus brings peace. Jesus commissioned the apostles to preach the gospel. Now, in these verses, what we have from John is a third picture of the events that occurred on that wonderful day when our Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. John's treatment of that remarkable day is by no means exhaustive. We see other uh, pictures of what happened on that day in the in the other gospel accounts, and it's certainly fine that John is not exhaustive. No history ever written has been exhaustive. But John writes under the inspiration of the Spirit, and he gives us three snapshots of the day of Jesus' resurrection. First, he tells us about Mary Magdalene seeing the stone rolled away, and Mary running and bringing Peter and John to the empty tomb. And then, as we saw last week in verses 11 through 18, we uh, saw there Mary Magdalene's encounter with the risen Lord. And then here, we read about Jesus' appearance to the disciples as a group on the evening of that day. And John tells us these things so that we may believe. And he begins telling us in verse 19 that when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, the disciples were gathered together and the doors were shut, or could also be translated the doors were locked for fear of the Jews. Now, as we know, the Lord Jesus had been killed at the instigation of the Jews. And now, first day of the week, now that his body is missing from the tomb, these disciples may have had an extra target painted on their back. The Jewish leaders may well have had it out for them. Whether they believed that the disciples had stolen the body of the Lord Jesus during the night, or whether they simply wanted to act as if the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus during the night. Nevertheless, one way or the other, the Jews may have had it in for the disciples. We know from Matthew 28, verses 11 through 15, that those who had been guarding the tomb went to the chief priests and told them what they had seen at the tomb that morning, and that the chief priests, in consultation with the Jewish elders, had agreed to pay the soldiers off to tell a lie and say that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders assured those soldiers that they would pacify Pontius Pilate on their behalf if 
news of the empty tomb happened to reach his ears. And Matthew tells us that indeed those soldiers did spread around this lie. Now, obviously, we can't be sure whether all that Matthew tells us there, Matthew 28, had reached the ears of the disciples by evening of that day. The disciples weren't logged into Twitter uh, to catch up on the latest news. But whether they knew about all of those developments or not, we can certainly understand why they would be afraid of the Jews. And so there they were. They were gathered together. They were fearful. And no doubt they were talking about the empty tomb, the report of Mary Magdalene, the appearance that Jesus had made to those two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and also the appearance to Simon Peter, which is referenced in Luke 24, 34. And so there was a lot to think about, there was a lot to talk about, and a lot with which they were certainly trying to come to terms with, most likely. And so while they were there and the doors were shut, or again could be translated, doors were locked, Jesus comes in and he stands in their midst. And this appearance of Jesus that John records for us uh, is uh, the same appearance that Luke records for us in Luke 24, verses 36 through 49. And if you compare the two accounts here, verses 19 through 23, with what we see there in Luke 24, you'll notice a number of similarities. Um, First, Jesus shows up and offers them a blessing of peace. We see that here in verse 19. You see it in Luke 24, verse 36. Both accounts make mention of Jesus showing the disciples his body, while John mentions his hands and his side here in verse 20. In, uh, in Luke, Jesus calls their attention to his hands and his feet. Both accounts mention the joy that the disciples had upon seeing the Lord on this occasion. John says here in verse 20, the disciples rejoiced seeing the Lord. While Luke says, Luke 24, 41, while they still could not believe it because of their joy and amazement, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And so given the, given the similarities between what John says here and what Luke says in Luke 24, these, these two accounts are describing the same event, the same appearance of Jesus to the body of the disciples on the evening of that first day of the week. And so the doors are shut, doors are locked, Jesus comes in and stands in their midst. How did this happen? Well, John doesn't tell us exactly how it happened. And we've got basically two possibilities as to how this happened. One is that Jesus' resurrected and glorified body came supernaturally, miraculously, somehow through the doors that remained shut and remained locked. The other possibility would, is that Jesus supernaturally and miraculously and unbeknownst to them opened the door that remained locked and came in, and they didn't, they didn't hear it. Now, historically, Uh, The church fathers, Roman Catholic and Lutheran interpreters, have generally gravitated toward that first opinion, and historically Reformed interpreters have gravitated toward that second option, that the miracle in this case involved the opening of a locked door. Now, whichever direction one may be inclined to go in regard to what actually happened there, I think there are two main truths that need to be maintained, whichever, whichever direction you decide to go. One is the truth must be maintained that Jesus' resurrected body was and remained a real human body. In other words, his body was not some ethereal, body-like substance. Right? He calls upon uh, the disciples to, to look at him and to touch him. His body is a true and real human body. He was not 
a spirit. He even says in Luke 24, 38 and 39, he says, Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. That's the first truth that must be maintained, that Christ's resurrection body was and remained a true and real human body. And the second truth is that Christ's appearance here was a miraculous appearance. And that seems to be the point that John is going for. John doesn't specify the manner in which Jesus made it through the locked doors, but he does give us the information that he gives us in order to let us know that this appearance was miraculous. The door was locked, Jesus was on the outside, and what do you know? Now Jesus is on the inside. One way or the other, miraculously, Jesus came to them. And he came to them, and what were his first words? Certainly there was much that Jesus could have said to them, much with which Jesus could have chided them. His first words were words of comfort. He said, peace be with you. He pronounces upon the disciples a blessing of peace. Now what is peace? Well, peace contains the idea of stability and well-being. Before his arrest and crucifixion, Jesus had said to them in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. And Jesus had wrapped up that long discourse at the end of chapter 16 by saying, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage I have overcome the world. Jesus is concerned to impart peace to his disciples. They were fearful of the Jews. They were uncertain about what the events of that day had meant. They were perhaps remorseful for fleeing Jesus and deserting him on the night of his arrest. But Jesus shows up and he extends to them a blessing of peace. And Jesus could truly give them peace because he had overcome the world. In fact, Jesus had just established the basis upon which true peace with God rests. To use the language of Paul in Colossians 1.20, he had made peace through the blood of his cross. Christ had accomplished this great salvation through which, by faith, they and also we may have peace with God. And so Paul says in Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And this peace with God then changes everything for those who have it. It is the only basis upon which we can have peace in anything. We find in Isaiah 57, 21, there is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Before trusting in Christ, we were formerly at enmity with God. We were at war with him. We were his enemies. But now we are reconciled to him through our Lord Jesus Christ. And having, therefore, peace with God, we can also be at peace with ourselves. As one writer expressed it, peace with God brings with it an inner peace that enables the believer to relate to his problems with tranquility and stability. Again, this is not to say that believers don't have problems. We do have problems. Jesus was open about that. He said, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, plenty of problems, plenty of troubles, but take courage, I have overcome the world. The peace, again, which Christ gives is not a peace in which there are no more problems. 
in the world, we have tribulation. But having peace with God, we can, we can deal with the troubles with a tranquil heart and a stable mind. And also having peace with God, we can now be at peace with each other. Receiving forgiveness ourselves, we are now empowered to forgive others who have sinned against us. Hence the command, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. This forgiveness is required from us as believers, and it flows from the fact that we've been forgiven by God in Christ. But at the same time, we do need to note here that this is a command given by God, as, and as in the case of any other command that is given by God, sometimes true believers may sinfully violate this command. And so if we ever find within ourselves a hard and unforgiving disposition, we need to return to the first principles of Christianity, that God in Christ has forgiven us of infinite rebellion, treason, and wickedness. And in Christ, we are those who know infinite forgiveness, and we're the beneficiaries of infinite grace and infinite mercy. And as such, being the recipients of this grace and mercy, being the recipients of peace with God through forgiveness in Christ, being vessels of mercy, we ought to be overflowing with mercy and grace toward others, toward others who have sinned against us. This is how being at peace with God overflows in our lives as believers so that now we can be at peace with others. Let's face it, if we were going to keep a list of grievances against all the people who had sinned against us, now this would be long, and, it, and every name on that list would probably have several things written beside it, right? But... We've been forgiven by God. And we've been forgiven much, much more than anything we could enumerate on any list where we keep in track, which we shouldn't. But God has forgiven us in Christ much, much more than others have sinned against us. And this is how we can be at peace with others. It's because we can extend grace. We can extend forgiveness to them. And oftentimes, we can even live at peace with those who are still the enemies of God insofar as it depends on us. By God's grace, we're often able to get along with unbelievers because we're at peace with God and we've been taught by Him and have received instruction from Him as to how we ought to live in this world. What do you know? If you, if you follow the Bible, you can often get along with people who are even still at war with God. And being at peace with God also allows us to be at peace with our own lives. Not because we've done everything perfect or have done everything that we ought to have done, but rather because we've been forgiven and accepted in Christ, knowing that there's no condemnation for us. And therefore, we can, we can move on from the past. Disappointing and discouraging as that past may be, we can move on. This is what Paul did when he said in Philippians 3.13, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Jesus appeared to his disciples here and he said to them, Peace be with you. And these are not empty words. He brought a blessing of peace to those who were gathered there that day, and he brings a blessing of peace to all who will come to him in faith. We read there in verse 20 that he showed them his hands and his side, and that the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. 
And though we were not there, though we have not seen Jesus with our own eyes the way that they did, we still have much cause to rejoice. And therefore, Peter says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. First Peter 1, 8 and 9. So we have peace with God through Christ. Jesus brings peace. And this brings us then to our second point. We see in verse 21 how Jesus repeats that blessing. He says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And our second point is that Jesus commissioned the apostles to preach the gospel. He says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. God the Father had sent his only begotten Son into the world to proclaim the gospel. And in some respects, the sending of the Son of God into the world is analogous to Jesus sending out the apostles into the world to preach the gospel. Now, as with all analogies, there are going to be some things in which the analogy does not hold true, right? But uh, let's, let's consider this a little bit. Because on the one hand, Jesus is the sent one par excellence, right? Jesus was sent into the world as the incarnate Son of God to reveal the character of God and the glory of God. And thus, in seeing Him, John could say, we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, as He said back in chapter 1, verse 14. Or He could say, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. There's something unique here about the sending of the Son into the world. And Hebrews chapter 1 picks up on that uniqueness of the revelation that come, came through Jesus Christ when the writer says, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. And so, obviously, Christ is the sent one par excellence. He's the exact representation of the Father, the one who revealed the Father's glory. He's the one who was sent out to make purification for sins and, in fact, did make purification for sins. And when he did so, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so, obviously, there's... There's going to be a great difference between the Father sending the Son into the world and Jesus sending the disciples. But nevertheless, there is a true analogy to be made, and a strong one at that. Jesus says, as the Father has sent me, so also I send you. And so let's consider this. Just as Christ was sent into the world to preach the gospel, you think of him preaching in the, uh, in the synagogue in, in Luke chapter 4. He was to, to preach the gospel, the good news to the poor. So also, the disciples are now sent out into the world to preach the gospel. Just as Christ went about doing good, as Peter says he did in Acts 10.38, so now the disciples were, go out, were to go out into the world doing good. They were to be filled with good works. Proclamation of the gospel, loving their neighbors, loving their enemies, loving the brotherhood of believers, and so forth. The sending of the apostles was like the Father's sending of Christ in that as Christ performed miracles to validate his identity as the Son of God. So now the apostles would perform miracles that would validate their message 
that Jesus is the Son of God and that his gospel is true. And just as Christ was sent on a difficult mission amongst evil people, many of whom would reject him and mistreat him, the same would be true for the disciples. They would be despised, they would be rejected, they would be subject to violence and threats, even death, as Jesus was. Jesus had told them about this. John fifteen twenty, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. And so Jesus is commissioning his disciples here and sending them into the world to preach the gospel. And in sending them, he breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, now what's going on here, right? Because we know that the, the fullness of the Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And Jesus had told them to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And this is not the day of Pentecost. This is, this is Easter Sunday. Pentecost was yet 50 days down the road. And also, certainly, the Holy Spirit had already been at work within them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, that no one can say that Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. And as Jesus had said in John 14, 17, he had told them that the Spirit who abided with them would be in them. And so... These men that Jesus was speaking to were regenerate. The Holy Spirit had been at work in them. And though the full, though the, uh, full outpouring awaited the day of Pentecost, yet here Christ breathes on them and imparts the Holy Spirit. He says, receive the Holy Spirit. I think, I think Calvin was helpful here when he said that if Christ at that time bestowed the Spirit on the apostles by breathing, it may be thought that it was superfluous to send the Holy Spirit afterwards, that there's no need to send the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Calvin says, I reply that the Spirit was given to the apostles on this occasion in such a manner that they were only sprinkled by His grace, but were not filled with full power. For when the Spirit appeared on them in tongues of fire, Acts chapter 2, they were entirely renewed. And I think, I think that's right. I think the idea here is that there is a, a measure of, of the Spirit, a sprinkling of the grace of the Spirit that's given here, but yet that the full outpouring yet awaited the day of Pentecost. And I think uh, you see this same idea in, in the writings of Cyril of Alexandria in the ancient church. He said, after having said that he would send the Comforter to us when he went away to the Father, and having fixed this occasion for granting this grace uni universally, namely the day of Pentecost, he performed in the persons of his disciples the first installment, as it were, of the promise. So the promise was to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but you have, you have the first installment. You have these sprinklings of grace being given to the disciples here on the evening of that first Easter Sunday. And I think if we compare this passage here in John 20 with the, the parallel in the Gospel of Luke, we may well suspect that at least one part of what was involved here with the receiving of the Holy Spirit on this occasion was a greater knowledge of who Christ is and what he came to do on the basis of the scriptures. And so this is Luke 24, 45 to 49. Jesus says, or Luke, Luke tells us, uh, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. 
And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you, but you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We may well suspect that Christ's opening of the disciples' mind to understand the scriptures, to understand how the Old Testament was all pointing forward to him, to his death, resurrection, and so forth, that this was the impartation of the Holy Spirit that John records for us when he breathed and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. Because it is the Holy Spirit who enlightens our minds so that we may understand the scriptures and may understand how they point ahead to Christ. And connected with these words, these words, Receive the Holy Spirit, are the following words. There in verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any... Their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. What's going on here? These are very important words because they speak of the forgiveness of sins. These are important words because they speak of the retention of sins. So it's important that we understand this rightly. Jesus speaks similarly in a couple of passages in the Gospel of Matthew. And so Matthew 16, 19, we, we read this. He said to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And again, in speaking of the process of church discipline, Matthew 18, he says in Matthew 18, verses 17 and 18, if he refuses to listen to them, that is, those two who have been sent to him, Tell it to the church, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be unto you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And these words of Jesus, those uh, there in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and here in John 20, verse 23, deal with the subject of what is called absolution. Absolution is the act of absolving, that is to say, Forgiving. When someone is absolved, they are declared to be free of sin and guilt. And so these words, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, and then here in John 20, have been understood by some in a judicial sense and by others in a ministerial and declarative sense. And there is a great and vast difference between these two understandings, and so it's important that we, that we think about these things. The judicial understanding of these words is adopted, uh, for example, by the Roman Catholics. And the sense in which they understand these words is that the apostles themselves, by these words received from Christ, that they themselves have the authority to forgive sins. Understanding the words in a judicial sense, they would understand it, that whatever the apostles pronounced to be in this case is the way it was. And the, the teaching of this view is that now the church, the hierarchy of the church that succeeds the apostles has this role in declaring judicially whose sins are forgiven and declaring judicially whose sins are retained, whose sins, that is, are not forgiven. So the Council of Trent uh, stated it this way, the absolution of the priest is nevertheless not a mere ministry, either of proclaiming the gospel or of declaring that sins are remitted, but is in the nature of of a judicial act in which a sentence is pronounced by him as though by a judge. Now, the problem with this view is that it gives too much authority to those who are but mere men. The scribes of Jesus' day had 
a whole lot of problems, but they were absolutely correct when they reasoned in their hearts and said, who can forgive sins but God alone? You may recall the scene that you find in Matthew 9, Mark 2, or Luke chapter 9. That that paralytic had been lowered through the roof. His friends had carried him up there because the crowd was too thick for them to get through to Jesus. So they carried him up to the roof, dug through the roof, lowered the man down on his pallet uh, to Jesus. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. And those scribes who were present and were witnessing this event began saying to themselves, This man is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now they were part right and part wrong. They were wrong about the blasphemy part. Jesus was not blaspheming. But they were absolutely right that only God can forgive sins. And because Jesus was God in the flesh, he could forgive sins. This is why he wasn't blaspheming. Because he is God and can forgive sins. And then you remember what happened. Jesus proved his authority to forgive By healing the man. He said, why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up and walk. But, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and walk. Obviously, it's a whole lot harder to tell somebody to get up and walk than to simply say that your sins are forgiven. And so he said to this paralytic, I say to you, get up and walk, to validate and demonstrate that he actually did have the authority to forgive sins. So the point that I'm going for here is that only God can forgive sins. Jesus is God and therefore he can judicially pronounce that sins are forgiven. He can give a ruling as a judge in this regard. And this is in line with what we find in Matthew 43:25 where we read, "I, even I am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake." and I will not remember your sins. The apostles, on the other hand, are not God. They, therefore, are not able to forgive sins, not, that is, in a judicial sense. And so, what does Jesus mean here, then, when he says, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, their sins have been retained. Well, this is Christ's way of demonstrating the importance of their office, this office that he was giving to the apostles of the preaching of the gospel. He had already said to them here, as we've seen, he said, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. And again, in that parallel passage in Luke 24, he also said to them, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all nations Beginning at Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. So Jesus is sending these men out to preach the gospel. And we do well to ask, what is the gospel? It is the good news that because of the grace of God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, the sins of all who believe have been forgiven. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, where he says, Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The preaching of the gospel is the announcement 
that sins are forgiven for those who trust in Christ. And thus Peter says to the household of Cornelius, as we read together this morning, Acts 10.43, Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes receives the forgiveness of sins. And Paul, in preaching in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, Acts 13, says this, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and through him everyone who believes is freed from all things which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. It's Acts 13, 38 and 39. In other words, this is the gospel. This is the, the ministry of reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. It is as though God were making his appeal through the voice of those who proclaim the good news. This is the gospel. It is the announcement that everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. And this is a ministry that is committed by Jesus to men. He commits it here to the apostles. It is a, a ministry. It is a declaration. The gospel preached by them would be the means by which the sins of all who believe in Jesus would be forgiven. And likewise, the apostles would declare, as John declares here in this book, John 3.36, he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. In other words, they proclaim to the impenitent and the unbelieving that they remain in their sins and therefore under wrath and under condemnation of God. And so this word of Jesus to the apostles here in verse 23 does not make the apostles the final judges of the salvation of men and women, but it does make them ministers of the gospel, servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God, as Paul would say it in 2 Corinthians 4.1. In the preaching of the gospel, they announced that those who believe in Jesus have their sins forgiven and that those who do not believe still remain in their sins. This is part and parcel of the preaching of the gospel. And thus it was, it was common in many of the old liturgies to include an, an absolution or a declaration of forgiveness in the order of service after uh, the prayer of confession. And so just to give one example of, of how this was done, uh, this, uh, this comes from the Reformed liturgy used in Heidelberg in the 1560s. After the prayer of confession, the minister would say this, Now hear the firm comfort of God's grace, which he promises to all believers in his gospel. Thus says the Lord Christ in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, so that all who believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And as many among you who are displeased with themselves and their sins and believe that they are completely forgiven through the merit of Jesus Christ alone and have resolved to die to sin more and more and to serve the Lord in true holiness and righteousness, to them... Since they believe in the Son of the living God, I proclaim on account of God's commandment that they are loosed from all their sins as he promises in his holy gospel by the perfect satisfaction of the holiest suffering and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. But as many among you who still take pleasure in their sins and vices or against their conscience persist in sin, to them I proclaim on account of God's commandment that the wrath and judgment of God remains upon them that all their sins are retained in heaven, and that they may not be dispensed from eternal condemnation until they repent. And what was taking place there was a, a ministerial declaration on the basis of the word of God that those 
who repent and believe have the forgiveness of sins. Their sins have been blotted out. And this is to be a comfort and a balm to those who are in Christ. We're not to be agonizing over the fact, over the question of whether our sins are forgiven or not. If we're believers in Christ, we are forgiven. And we should come and hear the gospel and receive that word with joy and rejoicing. And yet in the preaching of the gospel, there is also a declaration that those who are yet unrepentant are still under the wrath of God, just as Scripture says they are. And they remain so until they repent. And this sentence that is proclaimed ministerially, that is declared as the gospel is preached, is, as it were, attested by the church when the church brings into its membership those who give evidence of being believers. When our church receives someone into membership, we are testifying that to the best of our knowledge, such a person is in Christ, that such a person does have the forgiveness of sins because they believe in Jesus Christ. And the flip side is that when the church exercises the utmost degree of church discipline, that is to say excommunication, the church is saying that unless that one repents, they give evidence that they are not in Christ, and therefore, so far as it appears to us, their sins are not forgiven. Calvin was helpful when he said, Let no one therefore contumaciously despise the judgment of the church, or account it a small matter that he is condemned by the suffrages of the faithful. The Lord testifies that such judgment of the faithful is nothing else but the promulgation of his own sentence, and that what they do on earth is ratified in heaven. For they have the word of God by which they condemn the perverse. They have the word by which they take back the penitent into favor. And so we need to understand that God, by his word, has given great comfort and great consolation to all who believe the gospel. Their sins are forgiven. And this ought to be proclaimed and declared as the gospel is proclaimed, so that timid consciences may be strengthened may be fortified in the truth. We, we read about that in the, in the call to worship, Psalm 32. Behold what blessedness belongs to him who has been forgiven. And David describes his own situation of, of wrestling with the, the anguish of a, of a terrified conscience and a heart that held on to its sin and was not confessing that sin to God. And then he describes the blessedness of confessing his sin, saying, I'm, I'm not going to hide it anymore. This is a great blessing. And so, if you are here today, and if you're a believer in Christ, I want you to rest and to be encouraged in this, that your sins, as many as they are, as wicked as they are, are taken away from you through faith in Jesus Christ. Again, Acts 10.43, of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives the forgiveness of sins. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But though the message of the gospel is this good and joyous news, yet it's not good news if you harden your heart against it, if you refuse to receive it, if you refuse to turn away from your sins and refuse to believe in Christ, you're still under judgment. You're still under condemnation. You are still in your sins. And as of now, you're without God and without hope in the world. Your sins are dragging you down to hell, whatever those sins are, whether it be hatred, jealousy, lust, greed, 
sexual immorality, lying, deceiving, stealing, dishonoring your parents, failing to love God with all that you are, failing to love your neighbor as yourself, all of these things stand against you if you're outside of Jesus Christ and they are dragging you down and will ultimately condemn you if you do not repent of them and believe in Christ. But if you're willing to listen, I bring you good news this morning. The good news that the God who made you is the God who loves you. That this God, the only true and living God, has mercy on sinners. God the Father has sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, into the world to die on the cross as a sacrifice for sinners. And this Jesus rose again so that we might have His righteousness, that we might be justified. And though there is nothing in the world that we could ever do to earn this kindness or this mercy, God offers it to us freely as a gift of His grace. If we will repent and believe, if we will turn to God and turn away from our sins and believe in Jesus. And if you're outside of Christ, I invite you to do that today. If you have more questions about this, you can talk to me or you can talk to another Christian whom you know here. We'd love to tell you more about what it means to receive the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. Please pray with me. Our Father, we recognize how unworthy we are, or at least we recognize that we are unworthy, though we may not recognize the full scope of it. And yet we come to you in grateful praise for this good news, that in Jesus, sins are forgiven. Atonement has been made. His blood has been shed for us. His life has been given in our place. Father, we are joyful because of Christ. We are joyful because of this reconciliation and this forgiveness that is declared to us in your gospel. Father, we ask that you would strengthen us, that we uh, would trust never in works of our own, but rather that we would trust in Christ with all that we are. We ask that you would strengthen us, that you'd help us. In Jesus' name, amen.